God bless you, praise team and choir and orchestra. Brother Mark, how awesome. Please be seated. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Should have said be seated if you can. I'll tell you what. They sang the battle hymn of the Republic. I was ready to go invade Nebraska. I was ready to go. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 36. John chapter 8, verses 30 through 36 is our text for this morning. The title of the message is True Freedom. True Freedom. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and here's what the Word of God says. Jesus Christ speaking. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. That's Jesus. So Jesus was saying to those Jews, Jesus was Jewish himself, speaking to his countrymen, who had believed in him, quote, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're indignant. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free... You will be free indeed. Will you read verse 36 aloud with me? So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. True freedom, John chapter 8, verses 30 through 36. The Liberty Bell is a symbol of American freedom and a symbol of our country. You may not know the background of the Liberty Bell. It was first ordered in 1751 by the Pennsylvania Assembly. They were still a colony. This was prior to the United States. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of Pennsylvania's Charter of Privileges. That was the original Pennsylvania colonial constitution prior to the um, founding of America. Tradition says, though it's hard to prove, that in 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, that the Liberty Bell was rung on that date in 1776. But it's hard to prove that. But there are two facts that are very clear about the Liberty Bell. Two things you need to know. First, it is inscribed with a Bible verse. You may not have known that, but on the Liberty Bell is a verse from the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. Here's what it says from the King James. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That's on the Liberty Bell. This verse is used as a reference to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. Some of you who've studied the Bible know about the year of Jubilee. If you don't, if you're still learning these things, the year of Jubilee occurred every 50 years, and it's when all the slaves were set free, all the debts were released. It was called the year of Jubilee. It was an Old Testament practice. So Leviticus 25.10 is in reference to that. And while we celebrate the good things about American freedom, the Liberty Bell actually reminds us of the flaw in the genetic code of our Constitution. Some people rightly have described slavery in the antebellum South as the flaw in the genetic code of the United States. And that's right. So the freedom described on the Liberty Bell, proclaim liberty unto the inhabitants in all the land was incomplete. What makes the Leviticus vote, quote, tragic 
is that just a few verses after Leviticus 25.10 and Leviticus 25.39 and 40, it says the Hebrew slaves were to be set free in the year of Jubilee. So here's the Liberty Bell, a symbol of a country that talks about freedom and talks about liberty, a quote referencing the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free and all of that in a country where slavery existed. The second thing most people know about the Liberty Bell is this. Not only does it have a Bible verse, it has a crack. You know about the crack. You've seen it. It's quite famous. Apparently, it cracked on Washington's birthday in 1846. They were ringing the Liberty Bell on uh, General Washington's birthday. And reports at that time from a newspaper at that time said, and I quote, that the, about midday as they're ringing the bell, it cracked. And the crack, and I quote, put it out of tune and left it a mere wreckage of what it was. But this crack in the Liberty Bell became symbolic of a broken nation. The Liberty Bell is a symbol of our beloved United States was broken. And just as the Liberty Bell no longer rang clearly, the freedom and the high ideals of our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights, were not being fulfilled for all people in America because of slavery. This crack in the Liberty Bell represented a crack in our nation. In fact, some abolitionists prior to the Civil War took the Liberty Bell on a tour around the country and they used it as a symbol of trying to end slavery. So it's got a Bible verse and it's got a crack and it's a symbol of what at that time was an incomplete liberty. The freedom we're talking about today though is not flawed and it's not incomplete and it's not cracked. It is freedom that comes through Jesus Christ and its symbol isn't a bell or a flag. Its symbol is a Roman cross. Its symbol is a crown of thorns. Its symbol is an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. And it's the type of freedom that does not have any bondage or flaws associated with it. It is true freedom. So today we're going to learn about true freedom. What does true freedom look like? Three great truths. We have an outline in the bulletin you can follow along. First, true freedom is found in discipleship. Look at verses 30 and 32 again. Uh, verse 30 is a transition verse, kind of travels you along from one place to another. And notice it says that many came to believe in him. That word believe there uh, apparently is referring to folks who had a sort of superficial faith. They believed, but not completely. They believed, but not perfectly. Their, their belief was still kind of in formation. But notice uh, what it says in verse 32. You shall know the truth and what the truth will I don't know how many Longhorn fans I have here in the auditorium this morning. I don't know how many University of Texas graduates we have here in Wichita. But the main building on the University of Texas campus, the University of Texas Tower, is a 307-foot-tall uh, building on the center of the university. And inscribed above the entrance of that building, right in the heart of the University of Texas at Austin campus, is this phrase from verse 32 from the King James. Here it is, as you walk across campus, in granite, it says, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And this famous quote from Jesus in that context on an academic campus is used as a symbol of academic freedom, that you're going to learn things on campus and knowing truth will set you free. Listen, I, I believe in academic freedom. I believe in uh, people getting as much education as can, as young as they can. That's my advice to every young person. Get as much as you can, as young as you can. But they're really taking that verse out of context. Now, I, I appreciate academia 
and I live my life in academia, there's a few things you need to know about academia. First of all, every academic, every professor, whether they are Christian or whether they're an atheist, they have one thing in common, zero social skills. I mean, absolutely none. So if you were on our campus and you're in a body cast at a copier and you've got one arm up here and you're like this and you're trying to make copies and one of our faculty came up beside you, their first question wouldn't be, my goodness, what happened to you? Were you in an accident? Their first question would be, how long will you be at the copier? That's how, it's kind of how academics work. But there's lots of things about academia, I mean, that I appreciate. But we just have to remember, academia has its limits. I would remind you, the Big Ten Conference has 12 teams, uh, or 14 teams, and the Big 12 Conference has 10 teams. So we're still working on our basic math skills in higher academia. But So academia has its limits, but... That quote that's right there in the middle of the campus in the University of Texas at Austin is taken out of context to refer to academic freedom. But really, it is a conditional clause. Notice what it says. Read verses 31 through 32 carefully. That little phrase doesn't live in isolation by itself. It starts in verse 31. If you continue in my word, first you have to remain in God's word. And the idea is that you stay there. That word remain is very interesting. It, it implies that you're deep in. You're remaining in God's word. You've made up your mind and you've settled your disposition. You are in God's word. You've got to get in God's word. Thus, uh, lots of Christian bookstores and Christian websites and Amazon, people buying books. And I encourage people to read. We have a pastor's book club. Sometimes I do get frustrated when people come to me and they've read some what I call religious bubble gum. And they come to me, so they, they've read some book. Several years ago in 2007, 2008, it was The Shack by uh, Paul Young, the Canadian author. And I had people coming up to me and say, Dr. Branch, Dr. Branch, have you read The Shack? And um, the most gracious thing I can say about The Shack is that it is an attempt to solve the problem of how does a good and all-powerful God allow evil to exist. The most frank thing I can say as someone who teaches theology is it's heresy. And so I had people coming up to me all the time, Dr. Branch, Dr. Branch, have you read The Shack? And my answer, I always wanted to say something like this. I restrained myself, but actually the thought, I'm telling you now what I thought every time. No, I haven't. Have you read the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus rises from the dead at the end. It's amazing. <laughs> Get in his word. Stay in his word. So the first condition is you remain in God's word. Uh, then notice what happens next. Live as a disciple. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Live as a disciple. This is not fickle oscillating between obedience and disobedience. Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me. This is living as a disciple. Then third, then you know the truth. Do you see the progression here? First, you remain in God's word. You live as a disciple. There's something, there's learning that occurs when you actually begin to put into practice the principles you're learning from God's word. So you remain in his word, you live as a disciple, and then you know the truth. Knowing truth is conditioned on the previous conditions. You only know the truth when you remain in his word and live as a disciple, then you know the truth. We live in a culture that's very confused about truth. In the 1960s, there was a psychologist who taught at Harvard. His name was Timothy Leary. Some of you remember him if you're older, Timothy Leary. And he was so far left that Harvard fired him. Let me tell you, as someone in academia, if you're that far left, you have accomplished something if Harvard thinks you need to go. But 1967, they, he spoke at 
what was called a human, and this is what they it was in San Francisco at Golden Gate Park. They called it a human be-in. Instead of a sit-in, they were having a human be-in. You say, what is a human be-in? Well, it's something where people drop LSD and they listen to the Grateful Dead, apparently. But So what happened, though, was Timothy Leary, January 1967, they have the human be-in, stands up in front of all these kids and tells them they need to drop some LSD to expand their minds and get in touch with the world by using LSD and that's going to help them learn truth and he coined the famous phrase he challenged them all to uh, turn on tune in and drop out the hippie culture of the 1960s and so the idea is that you blow your mind on LSD and somehow this is going to help you expand your consciousness and discover truth listen this is from a guy with a PhD from a reputable school who had taught at Harvard. There are limits to what academia can do for you, as great and as awesome as it is. Truth is not found in blowing your mind on drugs. Truth is found in Jesus Christ and remaining in his word. And when you start to discover the truth, here's three things you learn. Three big ideas out of the Bible. First, God is holier than you or I imagine. He is holy. He is infinite holy. Secondly, our sin problem is much, much deeper. The malady is far more severe than we ever imagined. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says we are dead in our sins. So we first, we learn that God is holy. Second, we learn we are sinners. And third, we learn this. In Jesus Christ, our holy God shows grace and mercy to sinners. Those are three big ideas from scripture and so when you begin to remain in his word you live as a disciple then you know the truth then the truth sets you free Jesus is truth and what is essentially part of himself he gives to others he gives it to us as his disciple and so the challenge is sometimes I've met people that say well yeah I believe in Jesus and I think he's the truth but they're not really putting it into practice let me try to illustrate it this way I, uh, I like to travel so let's imagine I'm going on a trip out west of a couple of thousand miles so I take my car to a mechanic and I tell you all about my mechanic. I tell you, my mechanic is awesome. This guy is the best mechanic I've ever seen. He can fix any type of automobile. He's always been trustworthy, never failed me. I'm telling you, he's the best. And so I took my car to him before my trip. And he told me that I needed new tires, new brakes, and the unibelt all around those things in the engine. That serpentine belt needs to be replaced too. And so I suppose I tell that to a friend. And my friend says, oh, so you're going on the trip? I said, yeah. Did you do all the things your mechanic told you? No, I didn't do any of them. Well, you said he was a great mechanic. Yeah, he is. He's the best. And he told you new tires, new brakes, new serpentine belt. Yeah, that's right. And you didn't do any of them. No. But you said he's a great mechanic. Yeah. You don't think he's lying to you. Oh, no, he's not a liar. He's truth. But you didn't do anything he said. And I've met people that say, oh, yeah, Jesus is awesome. I believe Jesus is great. Are you doing anything? He says, well, no. Well, what does he say about this choice? Well, he says, do this. What did you do? I did something else. Well, he says, A, and you do B. Oh, what's, what's, there's a problem here. That when you know the truth, the truth sets you free, but the truth has to be put into practice. And sometimes even when we know the truth, we start trying to substitute religious activity for a personal relationship with Jesus. Listen, I'm glad you come to church. I far prefer preaching to people instead of empty seats. But... You just religious activity will not suffice for our sin problem. Our sin problem is, is so deep, it can't be solved by us. We do not have the resources to fix it. In fact, that leads to our next major point in the text here. Notice what it says. 
True freedom is freedom from sin. We've seen that true freedom is found in discipleship, but true freedom is freedom from sin. There's a transition. So they get upset with Jesus when he starts talking about them being free. So they answered him in verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved by anyone. How is it you say we shall become free? I wish that I could communicate somehow the indignant tone of their question. They're angry at him. Why? If you, John chapter 7 and 8 go together, they're really all one textual unit. And in John chapter 7, it's very clear. They had just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. If you don't know much about the Old Testament, there's seven Old Testament feasts. One of them is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember the children of Israel came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea? They travel through the desert. They live in tents. So for a few days, every fall, Jewish people would get together. They would actually set up little um, booths, uh, B-O-O-T-H, or a tabernacle, and they would kind of live outside. It was a fun camping expedition for the family to celebrate the deliverance from Egypt. The reason I tell you all that is this. They just said, we've never been slaves to anyone. Then why are you celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles? You just, you're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles because you were slaves in Egypt and God brought you out. Furthermore, there's self-deception going on here. They said, we've never been slaves to anyone. Well, you just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. That's all about slavery in Egypt and being set free. But also, if some of you know your Bible, you've read the book of Judges. They're under the oppression of a lot of people in Judges. And then later on in 722 B.C., the Assyrians take out the northern ten tribes. They're slaves to them. 586 B.C., the Babylonians take over Jerusalem. They're slaves to them. By the way, the Persians ruled them for a while. Greeks had. And when they were saying this very thing, we've never been slaves to anyone. How dare you say that? They are standing in the temple area. And I know this is hard to imagine, but back in that day, the Romans had a fort right by the temple called Antonia, Fortress Antonia. It was right by the temple. They are standing there saying we've never been slaves to anyone with Roman soldiers staring down at them. Do you, do you see the deception? And I've met people that tell me I live my own life. I do what I want. I am my own person. Oh, really? Well, why are you wearing your pants around your knees? Well, everybody else does. That's just what I do. Okay, you are not your own person. You're listening to someone. The question is, where are they leading you? And I can tell you where this world leads you. It leads to hell. Jesus Christ leads to life and abundant life. You're, you're, listen, self-deception is a tricky thing. We start believing our own lies. Oh, I'm free. What happened to all your money? Well, I spend it all gambling. I thought you said you're free. Well, I am. Why did you do that? Well, I just can't stop. You're not free. Stop lying. If you're going to get free, there, there has to come a point when we stop telling ourselves life. It's self-deception. Sin leads to self-deception. People do not usually recognize they are in bondage. But it also leads to slavery. Look at verse 34. Jesus says something. He who sins is a slave to sin. Interesting phrase. Amen, amen, he says. That's a solemn declaration. That means you need to listen to what I'm about to say. Everyone who commits sin, the, the grammar here is a participle construction that points to a continuing state of sin. That You're just living in sin. The practice of sin actively enslaves. So many of the destructive vices begin with an initial rush of pleasure, but subsequent indulgences do not provide the same level of pleasure, the same level of high. In, a, in an attempt 
to regain the initial high of the first time cocaine or heroin or meth use, people will try larger and larger doses of the drug. And to try to regain the initial rush of pornography use, men will try larger and deeper and more vulgar forms and more violent forms of pornography. And in an attempt to regain the kind of first feeling of freedom when you first start cussing, people use stronger and more profane cuss words. And in an attempt to gain the original high and the original rush of promiscuity and immorality, people try more and more and more sexual partners, and it never satisfies. It leaves you thirsty. That's why in John chapter 4, a woman who had been married five times and divorced five times and was living with a guy, Jesus said to her, I have what for you? Living water. You'll never thirst again. There are, I'm telling you, there's some thirsty people at church this morning. I mean, you're thirsty. You have been to the well of this world over and over and over again. It has left you emaciated and broken. And I'm telling you, Jesus is still standing by the well. He's got living water today. And Jesus satisfies. Sin leads to slavery. But I'm telling you, Jesus, it just bubbles up joy. And it never, never, never goes dry. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You remember, we're going to have vacation Bible school. We used to sing that when we were kids. You remember that song? Hey, there's more doctrine in that than you ever realize when Jesus Christ comes inside you there's a river of joy and a river of peace and there's hope in the name of Jesus Christ sin leads to slavery Jesus leads to freedom well see the the problem is we we can't get free from the slavery we have this this slavery to sin let, let me explain it this way before the civil war in this country we had a thing called the underground railroad activists and uh, abolitionists and slaves themselves organized this secret, uh, really clever way of shuffling escaped slaves through different stations at night all till they got to the Ohio River they could get across to the free land on the other side. So you may not know this, some of the designs that you see in quilts, these fabulously complex designs, slaves would actually craft these quilts and each quilt and each design had a particular message and they would hang the quilts out on the plantation the slave owner didn't know what was they just thought it was a quilt being hanging out to dry or to clean to get the dust out but really the the particular design on a quilt would alert people on the underground railroad the threat level it's like an orange yellow green threat level or something and it's really clever it's really brilliant by being courageous and intrepid and brave american slaves were able to escape via the Underground Railroad to freedom. They could escape from slavery. It was localized in a place, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, wherever. It's localized. You could get away from it. The slavery of sin is not like that. You can't run from it. It's inside you. You carry it with you. There's no way that I can escape from it. Everywhere I go, I've got it with me. This slavery follows me around. I need a liberator. In fact, I need what the book of Ezekiel says is a new heart. God takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, and Jesus sets me free. I, listen, the, the problem is people try religious things. They, they know they have a sin problem. It's, well, I'll be more religious. I'll get involved in church activities. Listen, uh, many church activities, in fact, will not free you from sin. They will, in fact, increase your sin problem. You say, what do you mean? Let me put it this way. One man shared his testimony. He said, I used to cuss, drink, gamble, run around, and then I quit the church league softball team, and I got set free. It was all better. Um, got more church league softball players here than I thought. But 
That sort of religious activity, it just won't do it. You need a, a liberator, someone to come and set you free. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin leads to slavery. One theologian said this, The greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol his free will. And let me give you an example from culture. There is a singer. His name is Robert James Ritchie. He goes by the stage name Kid Rock. And in 2007, he released an album called Rock and Roll Jesus. And a song on that album by the same title, Rock and Roll Jesus. Here's a quote. Here's what Kid Rock said. It's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll, a soul sensation that you can't control. And you can see I practice what I preach. I'm your rock and roll Jesus. Yes, I am. I'm your rock and roll Jesus. God help us. Blasphemy. And here's a guy, by the way, tell you, I'm going to set you free. He's so messed up, he got in a fight in a Waffle House in 2007, got charged with battery. I mean, listen, when I get my scattered, covered, and smothered, I'm happy. I don't want to fight. What's going, it's, we don't have Waffle Houses in Wichita, right? It's a sign of the apocalypse. We need to work on that. <laughs> I'm just pointing out. Here's a guy telling you, I'm going to set you free. And he's in a Waffle House over his, uh, you know, hash browns. Oh, come on, man. I'm going to shoot you. I'm a man. Oh, that's a man. I got in a fight in a Waffle House. Woo-hoo. I'm going to set you free. Not going to set you free. He's giving you slavery. He's giving you slavery and bondage. And the world promises freedom. It only gives bondage. So I have to stress to you that one of the great challenges, and, one, and it's not really a challenge. I said that wrong. It's an irony. That's the better word. Here's the irony. You can be a slave and be free and you can be free, yet be a slave. Here's what I mean. It's, it's, it sounds backwards, but let me explain it this way. I'm going to tell a story from World War II. April 16th, 1942, the USS Hornet, an aircraft carrier, and on the deck of that aircraft carrier, 16 B-25s. By the way, they built B-25s up in Kansas City, uh, Kansas, during World War II. 16 B-25s. Kids, this may not mean anything to you. A B-25 was a land-based airplane. It was not a carrier-based aircraft. You couldn't land one on a carrier. But a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle had this idea. He said, I think we could attack Japan with these B-25s. You have to understand, the first part of 1942 was horribly depressing for the United States. Loss after loss after loss, defeat after defeat after defeat. Wake Island and Guam and the Philippines, and the news is always bad, and Pearl Harbor, it's always bad. And looking for some way to strike back. So 16 B-25s on the storm-tossed seas in the North Pacific, uh, they were going to sail closer to Japan than they got. They were, they were going to take off from the Hornet, bomb some cities in Japan, and then land in China. Some Japanese picket ships picked them up a little sooner than they uh, thought and so they had to take off in a hurry and you can see a video of this on YouTube and that first plane uh, Jimmy Doolittle takes off and you see these aircraft flying into the air 16 B-25s five men on each one of them the last aircraft in the Doolittle raid has a bombardier named Jacob DeShazer so the 16 B-25s take off. They bombed different sites in Japan. Had very little tactical value, but huge strategic value. Without getting into a lot of details, the Doolittle Raid actually helped contribute to our victory at Midway, which turned the course of the war in the Pacific. It's a long story, but huge strategic value because suddenly the Japanese realized, well, they can attack us. After they bombed, uh, President Roosevelt played his cards close to the vest, and he was in a news conference, and someone said, well, where did they take off from? He cleverly said, Timbuktu, right? That's really... And so, of those 80 airmen, 16 aircraft, five men each, 80 airmen, 
Eight of them, uh, excuse me, three of them actually died attempting to land in China. Eight of them got captured. The others were set free. Uh, Jimmy Doolittle won the Medal of Honor. Those eight men, though, are captured. Eight of those airmen. One of them's Jacob DeSazer. They go into Japanese captivity. The Japanese have a trial in 1942, condemn three of them to death, behead them, execute them. There's five left. One of those men starves to death. Jacob DeSazer spends almost 40 months 40 months in Japanese prison camp, 34 months of those in solitary confinement, and he's mad, and he's angry, and he's reading. He hates his enemy. They executed his friends. They starved one of them to death. They're starving to death, and he hates his enemy. He hates his guards, and he's wrestling in his own heart with his anger, and he's sitting there in a prison camp, the heat and the squalor and the vermin and the, the bugs and the filth, and here's what he said. My hatred for the enemy nearly drove me crazy. My thoughts turned toward what I had heard about Christianity, changing hatred between human beings into real brotherly love. He was not a Christian. He said, I begged my captors to get me a Bible, and here's a direct quote, and when the emperor of Japan told them to treat us better, I got one. They gave him a Bible, said, you have three weeks. You can read this Bible for three weeks. So he's in solitary confinement, in squalor of a Japanese prison, starts reading the Bible. He's not a Christian, and he gets to a verse. He gets to a verse. Church, I just said he got to a verse. He, he got to a verse in the Gospel of Luke where a man on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jacob de Sazer said, it changed my life. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ in a Japanese prison cell. And he got saved. And when he got saved, he stopped hating his guards. And he began to feel pity for them and began to feel compassion for them and began to pray for them and try to be respectful for, towards them, even though they're beating him. Do you see what happened? He's in prison, but he's free. They're the guards and they're free, but they're still in prison. Let me tell you what you might be in prison today Jesus can set you free Jesus breaks the chain of hatred and unforgiveness and bitterness you can be a slave and be free you can be free and be a slave Jacob de Sazer goes to uh, he's a member of a he, he passed away a few years back he was a member of a free Methodist denomination and uh, went to Bible college went back to Japan 1948 as a missionary spent about 30 years there planting churches Wrote a little track that got read lots of, by lots of Japanese called I Was a Prisoner of Japan, telling his own story. We're going to come back to it in just a second. But not only does true freedom mean freedom from sin, true freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus says something interesting here. He starts talking about family relationships in the day. He says, a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain free. And so let's talk about faith in the son. Notice what happens in verse 34, 35. Leon Morris, commenting on this phrase, the slave does not remain in the house forever, said this. Jesus draws attention to the difference between the slave's relationship to the home and that of a son in order to show that he can bring people to freedom they cannot procure for themselves. Jesus saying, hey, uh, this, the slave stays in the home. Listen, a slave... Uh, is just there as long as the owner wants him there. If the owner wants to sell the slave, the slave is sold. The owner wants to get rid of the slave, the slave is gone. Now, a son, some, you, you might want to kick him out of the house sometime, but they're still your son, right? Does that make sense what I just said? If, imagine a system of slavery under the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. You sell a slave, they're no longer your slave, right? But your son, some of you daddies, help me out. You know what I'm talking about. Your son, he's always your son, right? 
My, my dad had to feel that way at times when I was uh, being a knucklehead as a young man. He said, yeah, I know he's a knucklehead, but he's still my son, right? Um, son remains forever. Slave doesn't remain forever. And so Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about the son. He's talking about he is the son. In the gospel of John, the son of God is defined this way. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became what? And made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the eternal son of God. Here's what you find out about Jesus. He was completely God and completely man. And God become man here on earth. And he was completely obedient to the Father's will. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the grave to pay the penalty for our sins. To offer us a place in heaven, which he offers as a gift. It's faith in the Son. If you want to be set free, you have to place your faith in the Son. And the sort of freedom that the Son, the Son, Jesus Christ, offers is freedom from sin. Jesus says the Son remains in the house forever. He is eternally the Son of God. And just as surely as he saved people 2,000 years ago, he can save you today. And his, his freedom is found in the Son. Notice what it says. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. One person said this, true freedom is not liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Listen, the world has promised you freedom and delivered slavery. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. There is freedom in the name of Jesus Christ. Hey, even in a Baptist church, we sang this morning. Brother Mark taught me something today. I'm now free to dance. Isn't that amazing? As a Baptist, we sang that this morning. I heard you. You sang it. We are free to dance. Some of you say, well, is dancing a sin, Brother Allen? Well, it depends. Do you have rhythm? I mean, really, that's the question. I'm, <laughs> but you're free. He who the sun sets free is what? Now, see, you're free. I told you about Jacob de Sazer. I told you about him and his hatred for his enemies and in a jacket, jap, the squalor of a Japanese prison camp and this hatred and anger and how Jesus changed him to compassion for the people of Japan. And he goes back as a missionary and he wrote a little tract, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. It's handed out to thousands of people. 1949, a bitter, angry Japanese warrior. A man of honor and great courage named Mitsuo Fuchida is walking through a train near a train station in Tokyo. Someone's handing out these tracks and someone gives him one. Mitsuo Fuchida reads the track. I was a prisoner of Japan. Finds it fascinating. You see, you don't know who Mitsuo Fuchida is, but he was the flight leader in the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy. He's the first man on station for those Japanese aircraft. He has a specially prepared aircraft. He's circling around high above uh, Pearl Harbor, and he's firing flares out of this aircraft to uh, indicate to the uh, aircraft how to attack and he's leading this thing he's there on the first wave stays for the second wave first and second waves he's flying over Pearl Harbor Mitsuo Fuchida he gets wounded at the Battle of Midway and after the war he's terribly angry and one of his friends he goes down to a dock one day and he sees one of his friends he thought had died uh, at the Battle of Midway and the guy said no I didn't die I've been in an American prison camp and he says he starts telling about his experiences in the American prison camp and there was this young lady there 
that was so kind to the Japanese prisoners. She's sort of like a YMCA sort of volunteer Christian worker trying to help the Japanese prisoners. And her mother and father had been executed by the Japanese army in the Philippines in 1942. But she showed kindness to these soldiers. When Bushida, uh, when, excuse me, when Mitsuo Fuchida heard that, it, it it, it was completely disconnect for him because you see the Bushido code which he followed said this somebody takes out your parents you don't let a day rest until you take them out and he couldn't understand someone whose parents had been executed by the Japanese military showing grace to these soldiers and now he's reading this track I was a prisoner of Japan and he starts reading it and he doesn't get saved that day, but he says, well, I'm interested. And he gets his hands on a Bible, and he starts reading the Bible. And about a year later, Mitsuo Fuchida gave his life to Jesus Christ. Not only that, he became a Christian evangelist. And about two years later, guess who he met? Jacob DeShazer. Guess who became friends? Jacob DeShazer, Doolittle Raider, Mitsuo Fuchida, lead pilot on the attack on Pearl Harbor. They became friends preaching the gospel together, and they preached together on many occasions. In fact, Jacob DeShazer started a church in the city he bombed. Mitsuo Fuchida helped him preach and share the gospel. How is it that one of the Doolittle Raiders and the lead pilot on the attack on Pearl Harbor become friends preaching the gospel. i tell you how, because who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm telling you, he takes away bitterness. He takes away hatred. It's nailed to the cross, and it's gone. And when you realize what Jesus did for our sin, you can't help but forgive other people. Forgiveness flows up out of you. Listen, there's some of you here this morning. Your life is a scorched earth of burned relationships. You've been anger and seething and bitter. Life's thrown you some things that aren't fair and it's made you angry and you're going to get your pound of flesh and you're going to get evening. Let me tell you what, you're in slavery, but there's a freedom maker here this morning. His name is Jesus Christ and who the sun sets free is free indeed and you've been carrying that anger and that hatred and that unforgiveness for years and your life is scorched and burned and you're lonely and broken and I'm telling you, who the sun sets free is free indeed. There's freedom this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ. It's freedom from sin. It's found through discipleship. It's freedom from sin. It's found in the Son. I'm going to talk to a couple of groups of people here. Listen, you're here and you've never been saved. And I talked about bitter and angerness and unforgiveness. And you're seething right now. You need to accept the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers that you might forgive others. He can change that bitterness and hatred into compassion and kindness. You've been burning yourself up with that stuff for years. Let it go. Let the sun set you free. Let Jesus change your heart. Let the peace of Jesus Christ run your life. Not this bitter, anger, uncontrolled sin. I'm going to be here at the front. And while they're playing and singing, we're going to give an invitation. And if you'd like to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. Take me by the hand. Pastor Chris, Pastor uh, Andy, Pastor Ryan are here. We have ladies here at the front as well. And if you want someone to pray with you, you can discover the freedom that Jesus Christ offers. We won't rush you. These are good people. These are fine Christians that love the Lord. And they'll take time to pray with you. Perhaps you're here and you've been saved and you know it. You know that you've trusted Jesus Christ, but you've never been obedient to him in believer's baptism. We invite you to come. We've had some children, some adults baptized lately. 
They've been obedient to the Lord. Maybe you need to join with them. You know you've been saved, but you need to be obedient. Perhaps the Lord has told you this is the church you need to join with to help win Jesus, uh, Wichita to Christ. We invite you to come. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, they're going to sing. And while they're singing, you come. Father, I pray you would set people free from sin this morning. Jesus, we are claiming your promise that who the Son sets free is free indeed. And there are broken people that need freedom this morning. And Jesus, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. And we're asking you to do it. To set them free from this anger and rage and sin that's dominated their lives. And I pray that they'd know peace in the name of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray you would do what only you can do. And that save someone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet. Wherever he leads, I'll go. While they're singing, you come.